Hello and welcome to Clearing the Haze, where we discuss the truth about vaping and key issues impacting the vapor industry. My name is Shell Hamill, Board Vice President of the Smoke-Free Alternative Trade Association, and I'll be our host for our show today. We're pleased to welcome Sally Sattel, MD, a practicing psychiatrist specializing in addiction and lecturer at the Yale University School of Medicine, who also examines mental health policy as well as political trends in medicine. Sally is also a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a nonpartisan public policy research institute. She's written widely about vaping, questioning the FDA, arguing for how vapor products can save lives, and advocating for moving the predicate date, among other topics. So, Sally, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. For those of you who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about what's behind your support for vaping? Well, I got interested in um, e-cigarettes, vapor products, because I have a, a more a broader interest in harm reduction from the coming at it from the uh, standpoint of uh, harder hard drugs from heroin in particular. I work in a methadone clinic, and uh, you know I've been certainly observing trends in in treatment for for uh, opiate users. You know, since the needle exchange days, and um, and obviously we we try to accommodate uh, people who have other kinds of addictions. Those that I would dare say are, are far more socially crippling uh, because they're intoxicating. Something nicotine isn't, um, sure. and yet there's so much resistance in the public health community, not, not uh, uniformly. There are certainly a lot of wise voices, but they're, they, they often seem to be drowned out by others and notably, in fact, even the, the Centers for Disease Control. And that's where things really get worrisome when our public health agencies who have our trust are transmitting information that is, you know, terribly one-sided, um, you know, half-truths, uh, um, a bias towards uh, anxiety, rather, towards uh, uh, the good we know that these uh, devices can do. And so um, it's really that hypocrisy that, that first caught my mind. You know, why aren't we so accepting of this, of harm reduction in other domains, and, and, and so critical and skeptical of it in this one? Right. Which, which actually takes me to the next question. So it almost goes without saying that uh, they are controversial in the medical community, with some groups even pushing, like you said, a prohibition abstinence-only agenda. As, as a practicing doctor, can you elaborate on the practical effects of that approach and what it would mean to patients if vapor products were just taken off the market? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that it would be very harmful to those who've already switched and those who are contemplating switching. Now, it, it goes without saying for your audience, but I'll say it anyway. No one's saying that, that vaping is completely safe. That's not the issue. It's whether it's safer than using combusted tobacco. And there seems to be no question about that. Uh, do we know what 20 years of inhaling propylene glycol will do? Um, no, we don't. Uh, but we have every reason to think that it's still less harmful than 20 years of inhaling tar. Um, and I should quickly say, and not nicotine. And that that's one of the, you know, I went to, um, um, you know, Yale, where I'm a, a lecturer, so I lecture there <laughs> a few right. times a year. And I spoke there last April to a pretty receptive audience, but a pretty, um, I have to say, 
um, not not very well educated audience on on e-cigarettes. Um, but again, I, I really applaud them for being very open minded. And by the end of the talk, I think I hope I, I changed some people's minds. Uh, but for example, there's a common misconception among physicians, and these were addiction experts. Sort of surprised me. Most of them were trainees, but still, you know, advanced trainees and fellowship years, you know, to think that nicotine itself is problematic as a chemical. I mean, of yes. course, in high doses it is, and we all know the dose makes the poison, but in, in terms of what one takes in in vapor products and even in cigarettes, nicotine is is addictive. There's no question about that, although I do think that is overblown, uh, but it is addictive. But, you know, unless you're pregnant or have a very fragile cardiac condition, nicotine is not a dangerous substance, and that's a big misconception as well. Right. I I actually have heard many times people um, notate that it's a carcinogen, which is, you know, it's not true. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So, earlier this week, a new study by Vanderbilt University Medical Center was published in Nicotine and Tobacco Research. It found that the majority of the U.S. physicians are, and I'll quote it, frequently discussing electronic cigarettes in a clinical context, and a substantial proportion of U.S. physicians have recommended vapor products to their patients, end quote. Uh, the study can also uh, has also found that more than 70% of U.S. doctors indicated that vapor products can help patients reduce or eliminate smoking, and nearly half, like 50%, believe that they can reduce risk. So. What does this survey tell us, and are we starting to see a growing middle ground in the U.S. with physicians getting behind this idea that vapor products can play a role in eliminating smoking and reducing the public harm caused by combustible tobacco? Well, it's, it's, you know what? It's kind of a mixed picture. Um, I mean, when you look at that study uh, in, in depth and look at all the um, uh, tables, I mean, what you said is, is correct. Um, in fact, they broke down the, um, they, they surveyed about 500 doctors. Actually, they surveyed 1,500, but over 44% returned their questionnaires, which is a pretty well anemic response rate, but it's unfortunately very typical as well. So we don't know, you know the people who didn't bark, so to speak. But, um, but of the ones that they surveyed, there were three categories of physician, pulmonologists, internists and surgeons, and the surgeons um, did most poorly on many of their questions. But yes, <laughs> they found that pulmonologists, 70% of pulmonologists did say that they believe e-cigarettes could help people quit. So so that's, I'd say that's encouraging. And um, right, the, the analogous uh, percentage for internists was 57% and for surgeons, 33%. So there's certainly work to do. And... Um, and you said over half, so 56% of pulmonologists also said they were safer than regular cigarettes. Again, you know, work to do. But what was, <laughs> what, what took the, what, whatever cheer one could derive from those numbers, <laughs> I found just dashed when I saw the percentages of how often have you recommended them. And then it was right. for pulmonologists 10%. Um, actually, internists twelve percent, and surgeons one point two. And I give surgeons a little break. You know, they don't, they don't treat people for chronic illnesses, but they they really see you in a kind of long time setting, pretty much. Um, but doesn't mean, of course, they shouldn't uh, 
have smoking on their mind. Uh, they work with anesthesiologists at the very least, and so that's very important for you know help one's uh, status during the surgery. Right. And um, in that same survey, ninety-eight percent of um, physicians said they think smoking is their responsibility, at least to address it, if not to actually help people quit. So, so that that was a very good sign. Um, but it's a pretty mixed situation. Um, you know, there was another study that, that came out at Stanford University. Um, that one was online. The Vanderbilt was, I think, by mail. And, um, and they found kind of, well, they, did, they found this worrisome thing about, overwhel- I'm quoting, overwhelming concerns about nicotine addiction. Uh, you know, again, the addiction, as I said, is what keeps people Smoking, so yes, there's reason to be worried about that. But right. um, but one, I strongly inferred from what they said that they were worried about nicotine per se. Yet, believe it or not, this um, uh, it, it said forty seven percent were negative about um, e cigarettes. So that must mean, uh, and yet only twenty percent were positive. So I suspect this broad that broad swath in the middle were, were kind of noncommittal. But even though 20%, this is the, the Stanford study I'm talking about now, 20% right. were considered positive, the good, sort of the good news, I suppose, is 45% in the Stanford study said they recommended e-cigarettes, which is even higher hmm. than the Vanderbilt study. So if you take, I guess, look at these two together, and um, certainly the work's not out on how doctors see this. And I'll tell you, Shell, because these, you know, are... Um, basically cross-sectional studies, they don't have a sense for how these are evolving. You know, in the public eye, I'd say worries about e-cigarettes have kind of increased over time. When I first started writing about this in the, um, I think, late 2014, the average person I mentioned e-cigarette to went, oh, yeah, those are kind of cool, aren't they? Or, yeah, those those seem like they could work. And, um, and lately, the attitudes are, oh, wait, aren't those dangerous? So that's Again, so I work for doctors and uh, anyone interested in this who knows the data. A lot of work to be done, right? And and I mean, you're referencing Vanderbilt, we're referencing Stanford, and looking at that. Um, I mean, do you think that it? I and mean, we're seeing these numbers that are completely different. You know, based on whether it be geographical or education or just you know whatever it is. Do you think that it's taboo? For these researchers to say something positive, um, and I've heard I've heard things from different physicians. So you know, I kind of I kind of heard a lot. But you know, is, is it taboo? Do you believe that for them to say something positive? Well, I'm not. You know, I don't. Um, I don't make the rounds of the academic world that much anymore. I'm in a think tank now called the American Enterprise Institute. But I would suspect. What can I say? I think if you were at UC, UCSF down the hall from. Dr. Stanton Glantz, <laughs> um, yes, it would right. not be welcome. I think it's um, probably institution-specific. You know, I've always been impressed. Um, I mean, I have to give the New England Journal of Medicine, which which I consider, uh, you know, it's instinctive bias, I think, is to lean um, with the, how would I say this, the, you know, to, to lean towards uh, a general skepticism towards certain things. But I give them credit for publishing outstanding articles by uh, the Columbia Group. Um, I'm getting her first name, but I think her last name is Fairchild. She's um, oh, yes. a pub- 
yeah, public health. Uh, she's written two pieces in there, or with others. Uh, it was a wonderful piece with David Sweener and others um, recently. So um, I get the New England Journal of Medicine, which I mentioned because obviously it's you know, premier um, medical journal. Um, and I give them credit for uh, publishing that. On the other hand, <laughs> they, they are the venue for all of the hysteria that emanated from the formaldehyde. Uh, right. Oh, and, yes. And, yeah, when Clive Bates, who's, you know, just a national treasure, but he's UK's national treasure, but, you know, we can sure. borrow him. Uh, when he and others wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, highly annotated uh, with reference to saying, listen, this formaldehyde paper was pretty irresponsible. I don't think they accommodated, you know, I don't think they accommodated him, which was unfortunate. But, um, uh, but, but I'd say, like, when I, again, when I went up to Yale, the general, uh, you know, in the public health school, there is Abigail Friedman, who's doing very nice work. I mean, she's just following the data. This really should have nothing to do with anyone's attitudes or biases, for heaven's sake. But, you know, and, and she's doing interesting work on the effect of um, um, the availability and, and, and use by children. And and yet, um, in the clinical, when I was visiting colleagues in the clinical world, and uh, one person, you know, truthfully, it depends on whether your view, it depends whether you prioritize children. And if you do... Um, then there seems to be much more skepticism. So one of the researchers there really, you know, is doing work on high schools and kids. And so the, the tenor from her was, oh, these are, you know, she was, she was skeptical. And then I talked to another researcher who works with schizophrenic patients, and he was struggling with how to do research on getting schizophrenic patients who about 60% smoke. Um, to switch over to e-cigarettes. So a lot of it depends on who your patient group is and who your research group is, I think, in terms of your general uh, attitude. I, I, I'm saying that in a sort of sweeping way, but I, I do think there's some truth to that. All right. So, so I mean, just by listening to what you're saying, I'm understanding that that's, you're hearing a lot of different views, especially, like you said, if you're, if you're really citing on the fact of children and and these being enticing to them or what have you, you're hearing a lot of different views from your colleagues. Is that correct? Yeah, I think like pediatric, the, the average pediatrician would um, see this and worry, you know, in somewhat, you know, see these cigarettes, vapors, products in a more worrisome light. And I can also base that on um, a panel I was on back in June with someone from the, um, I think it's the American Academy of Pediatrics, but their flagship group. And, um, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, he thought the FDA regulations were fantastic and, you know, oh. again, not, not, not very positive about um, right. the devices. So what about addiction specialists? What are you finding they, you know, their overall uh, opinion is of these products? You know, believe it or not, most addiction people we don't work don't work with tobacco. It's funny when you're treating, you know, heroin addicts. Sometimes you think this is the least of my problems. <laughs> but right. Um, right. to the extent that tobacco, to the extent that addiction people um, are tobacco people, and that is a, that is a, that really is a, sub, a subset. I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, there's certainly some overlap, but but I, I think they're. Pretty distinct groups, 
people who do uh, nicotine addiction versus people who do, um, you know, heroin, cocaine, alcohol. Again, right. not a bright line, but, um, but but I think on a scatter plot, they really do come out of sort of two different clusters. Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm biased that the 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 nicotine slash tobacco people that I deal with are among the most enlightened. Around you know Saul Saul Sher and Dr. Folds, um, uh, uh, I'm blocking on names all of a sudden. Um, Jed Rose. I mean, you go on and on. I mean, these are the John Hughes. These are the masters, and then they're of course you know very <clears throat> extremely um, knowledgeable and, and, and reasonable and appreciate the enormous uh, risk reduction of these um, products. But uh, but I don't think nicotine people talk to the other addiction people all that all that much. Um, plus, in the addiction world, this is one of my pet peeves, um, we've come to call addiction a brain disease, which just, is that uh, rhetoric that just, <laughs> it yeah. just drives me up a wall because it just <laughs> suggests that um, addicts are victims and people can't quit. And, and I, I realize there's, uh, you know, a continuum in, in difficulty of quitting and there's no question that, you know, some of that is biologically mediated and, and all this. Um, I actually believe that under the right circumstances, probably even anyone can quit. But if they don't want to and if it's too, you know, it's too much, uh, which for some people it just requires such vigilance that they, sure, it's just overwhelming. So, you know, thank goodness we have these alternatives. We have smokeless too, but um, which we have even better data for because it's been collected for many more years. And um, and and we see the same pattern, you know, of, sure. of general, um, well, A, lack of knowledge, and then B, to the extent that a person has an opinion, it's, it's a negative one. So, right. Yeah, I, um, I actually spoke to a drug addiction specialist quite a while back, and they actually said, you know, we don't, and, you know, like you said, that heroin and all those are, are so much more important to focus on. They said, you know, they use this as a crutch. You know, you have to really make sure that you kind of, I guess, you attack one at a time, for sure. Yeah, there are um, a lot of theories about that in terms of, of uh, but but yes, that, and that would be my view too. I wouldn't if someone came into well, I work in a methadone clinic. You know, I don't. Right. The first thing is get stabilized now on you know your opiate problem, and then we'll you know talk about cigarettes. Right, right, of course, absolutely. Well, I mean, and going with all these studies, and of course, I'm sure that you know about the Royal College of Physicians and and Public Health England and what they've come out with. What is it going to take for the U.S. to move towards a position similar to these? And, and I mean, do you think it's even possible to give uh, the well, given their regulatory framework right now? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't quite understand the question. Um, is it the get, what's, get what's physicians or get the, FDA? Yeah. Oh, just what's it yeah, going well, to take the for FDA. the U.S. to move towards that way? Right. Like, yeah. uh, primarily the FDA and the, the very. Uh, stringent, you know, regulations that they placed on us right now. Right. Well, that the FDA, apart from the practical implications of, uh, or I mean, the um, implications for access to, to products and, and the suppression of the industry, um, it's just symbolically such a negative message because it basically screams these things are d dangerous. Um, right. Or these things are so potential, so potentially dangerous that we have to be so vigilant. Um, 
you know, what, of course, what we have to do, I believe, is, um, well, I know we're approaching from all sides. I know Nick Appear has a, a lawsuit. Um, but congressionally is to, um, uh, you know, support either the grandfather, you know, changing the grandfather date or, or legislation that says, listen, for FDA, a lot of the information the FDA wants is, is perfectly reasonable, you know, in terms of, of um, people who are not non-smokers resuming use, although I think I think we've now got five years of data to show if anything use is going down of cigarettes. But sure, uh, the, the still reasonable questions, you know, all the epidemiological follow-up, the questions are fine questions. The issue for me is that they have to hold everything up to this. These are post-market. These should be post-market types of, of right. concerns. And right now, what we need is just basic safety. So your e-cigarette's not going to explode in your face. And who knows how often that happens. I don't doubt it does. I'm sure these are, you know, bad Chinese versions. But, you know, and and that the the e-liquid is not contaminated and the packaging, you know, stipulate. That should be what the FDA should be doing. And um, and that, I believe, requires congressional intervention. And uh, I don't know how, you know, doctors in general don't get that involved with legislation unless it has to do with payment issues. Um, And so, you know, I don't know how many doctors are going to jump on that bandwagon. Um, you know, I know probably a lot of folks, as I could say, on this nicotine policy um, listserv I'm on <laughs> who are American. It's an international yeah. list. Um, well, truthfully, I don't know. Some people who are in academia are a little, you know, gun-shy. And I understand if you don't have tenure, if it's just so far out on a limb, you can go. Um, but I certainly would support such a thing, and, and I know a lot of colleagues who are fairly senior would, would do it. Um, that that would be, uh, you know, that would really be ideal. In the meantime, I wish more physicians would read. You know, there are wonderful blogs. Um, uh, Michael Siegel's yes. blog, uh, Clive Bates, uh, as I mentioned him before, the counterfactual. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad Rodu, who's a um, actually trained as I think a dental pathologist. He has Tobacco Truth. I mean, these these Absolutely. people are just you know masters of, of this field and very right. careful and, and, and they go where the data go and, um, and, and you could learn an enormous amount from, from, from reading that. And, you know, so when I give my little talks, I, you know, I try to tell people to, to, um, you know, take advantage of those, but, uh, it, sometimes it really is just a one person at a time, you know, every time somebody else like David Sweener goes out and gives a talk and, you know, I know he walks away with people enlightened. I think we just, there has to be like a force feeding the, uh, you know, the public health world because, you know, there are people who feel very strongly and a lot of people who just simply don't know, but, you know, you respect your colleagues. That's, that's sort of the default position. Well, he knows about this and if he says it's bad, then it must be bad. Right. But, you know, if, if you say, well, let's have a grand round on e-cigarettes and um, ideally invite the right people. <laughs> right. um, you change you know, you change minds or at least you don't even have to change well you do want to change minds, but you are not gonna get a lot of people to speak out. That's just not what academics do. But at least they would um, you know, not be part of that chorus of people saying, Whoa, you cigarettes, you know, I wouldn't do that. So, um 
Right. So that's that's important as well. You find that in legislation as well, not just in, in uh, academia. You find it in, in legislation and, and just legislators um, across the globe, too. Nobody, everybody wants to side with, you know, their, their friends rather than uh, sit in a ground room and, and really hammer out the issues. So I completely get it. So I can, I can definitely, you know, draw from that basically your message for your colleagues, for sure. So, I, I mean, I guess I have one last question before we end. Can you shed some light on, on what you're working on now and uh, how we can follow your work? Oh, that's easy. Um, well, as far as, you know, I do other things, certainly besides um, this topic, uh, so I'm, but I'm always scanning the, scanning the environment um, for the latest outrage. Um, I'm, uh, someone once accused me of being an activist, and I said, I'm not an activist, I'm a reactivist. There's so much, <laughs> you know, there's so much lunacy and bad science, and that's really the overarching theme of all the work I do. We are so glad um, you are, too. (laughs) Politicized medicine and science. So, anyway, I have a a website, sallysatelmd.com. I don't don't blog, but I, um, you know, that's where all my my articles are. So, uh, but they range from this to organ markets, which is something I'm incredibly interested in, and addiction more generally, and mental health policy, and race differences in health, and pretty much anything that, anything where emotion and politics can warp the facts and policy is is something that interests me in the health, in the health domain. Excellent. Okay, so Sally Sotel. Uh, MD.com. MD.com. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, well, with that, I want to thank you, Kelly, for participating on the show. And special thanks to our listeners today. You can visit at Zapata.org to download this podcast, as well as past shows, um, including Zapata's top 10 vapor packs, demystifying misconceptions about the vapor industry. And please don't forget to follow Zapata on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you so much, Sally. Oh, thanks for having me.